Part six of This Simian World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Epistomolus. This Simian World by Clarence Day, Jr. Part six. Thirteen. Are we, or are we not, simians? It is no use for any man to try to think anything else out until he has decided first of all where he stands on that question. It is not only in love affairs. Let us lay all that aside for the moment. It is in ethics, economics, art, education, philosophy, what not. If we are fallen angels, we should go this road. If we are super-apes, that. Our problem is not to discover what we ought to do if we were different, but what we ought to do being what we are. There is no end to the beings we can imagine different from ourselves, but they do not exist, and we cannot be sure they would be better than we if they did. For when we imagine them, we must imagine their entire environment. They would have to be part of some whole that does not now exist. And that new whole, that new reality, being merely a figment of our little minds, would probably be inferior to the reality that is. For there is this to be said in favor of reality, that we have nothing to compare it with. Our fantasies are always incomplete, because they are fantasies. And reality is complete. We cannot compare their incompleteness with its completeness. Footnote. From an anonymous article entitled Tolstoy and Russia, in the London Times, September 26, 1918. Too many moralists begin with a dislike of reality, a dislike of men as they are. They are free to dislike them, but not at the same time to be moralists. Their feeling leads them to ignore the obligation which should rest on all teachers, to discover the best that man can do, not to set impossibilities before him and tell him that if he does not perform them he is damned. Man is moldable, very, and it is desirable that he should aspire but he is apt to be hasty about accepting any and all general ideals without figuring out whether they are suitable for simian use. One result of his habit of swallowing whole most of the ideals that occur to him is that he has swallowed a number that strongly conflict. Any ideal whatever strains our digestions if it is hard to assimilate, but when two at once act on us in different ways it is unbearable. In such a case, the poets will prefer the ideal that's idealist. The hard-headed instinctively choose the one adapted to simians. Whenever this is argued, extremists spring up on each side. One extremist will say that being mere simians we cannot transcend much, and will seem to think that having limitations we should preserve them forever. The other will declare that we are not merely simians, never were just plain animals. Or if we were, souls were somehow smuggled into us, since which time we have been different. We have all been perfect at heart since that date, equipped with beautiful spirits, which only a strange, perverse obstinacy leads us to soil. What this obstinacy is, is the problem that confronts theologians. They won't think of it as simianness. They call it original sin. They regard it as the voice of some devil, and say good men should not listen to it. The scientists say it isn't a devil. It is part of our nature, which should of course be civilized and guided, but should not be stamped out. It might mutilate us dangerously to become under-simeonized. Look at Mrs. Humphrey Ward and George Washington. 
worthy souls, but no flavor. In every field of thought, then, two schools appear that are divided on this. Must we forever be at heart high-grade simians, or are we at heart something else? For example, in education, we have in the main two great systems. One depends upon discipline, the other on exciting the interest. The teacher who does not recognize or allow for our simian nature keeps little children at work for long periods at dull and dry tasks. Without some such discipline he fears that his boys will lack strength. The other system believes that they will learn more when their interest is roused, and when their minds, which are mobile by nature, are allowed to keep moving. Or in politics. The best government for simians seems to be based on a parliament a talk-room, where endless vague thoughts can be warmly expressed. This is the natural child of those primeval sessions that gave pleasure to apes. It is neither an ideal nor a rational arrangement, of course. Small executive committees would be better, but not if we are simians. Or in industry. Why do factory workers produce more in eight hours a day than in ten? It is absurd. Super-sheep could not do it. But that is the way men are made. To preach to such beings about the dignity of labor is futile. The dignity of labor is not a simian conception at all. True simians hate to have to work steadily. They call it grind and confinement. They are always ready to pity the toilers who are condemned to this fate, and to congratulate those who escape it, or who can do something else. When they see some performer in spangles risk his life at a circus, swinging around on trapezes high up in the air, and when they are told he must do it daily, do they pity him? No! Super-elephants would say, and quite properly, what a horrible life! But it naturally seems stimulating to simians. Boys envy the fellow. On the other hand, whenever we are told about factory life, we instinctively shudder to think of enduring such evils. We see some old workman filling cans with a whirring machine, and we hear the humanitarians telling us, indignant and grieving, that he actually must stand in that nice, warm, dry room every day, safe from storms and wild beasts, and with nothing to do but fill cans. And at once we groan, How deadly! What monotonous toil! Shorten his hours! His work would seem blissful to super-spiders, but to us it's intolerable. Grind and confinement? That's the strong monkey blood in our veins. Our monkey blood is also apparent in our judgments of crime. If a crime is committed on impulse, we partly forgive it. Why? Because being simians, with a weakness for yielding to impulses, we like to excuse ourselves by feeling not accountable for them. Elephants would have probably taken an opposite stand. They aren't creatures of impulse, and would be shocked at crimes due to such causes. Their fault is the opposite one of pondering too long over injuries, and becoming vindictive in the end, out of all due proportion. If a young super-elephant were to murder another on impulse, they would consider him a dangerous character and string him right up. But if he could prove that he had long thought of doing it, they would tend to forgive him. Poor fellow, he brooded, they would say. That's upsetting to anyone. As to modesty and decency, if we are simians, we have done well, considering. But if we are something else, fallen angels, 
we have indeed fallen far. Not being modest by instinct, we invent artificial ideals, which are doubtless well-meaning, but are inherently, of course, second-rate, so that even at our best we smell prudish. And as for our worst, when we, as we say, let ourselves go, we dirty the life-force unspeakably, with chuckles and leers. But a race so indecent by nature as the simians are would naturally have a hard time behaving as though they were not and the strain of pretending that their thoughts were all pretty and sweet would naturally send them to smutty extremes for relief. The standards of purity we have adopted are far too strict for simians. 14. We were speaking a while ago of the fertility with which simians breed. This is partly due to the constant love interest they take in each other, but it is also reinforced by their reliance on numbers. That reliance will be deep, since, to their numbers, they will owe much success. It will be thus that they will drive out other species and garrison the globe. Such a race would naturally come to esteem fertility. It will seem profane not to. As time goes on, however, the advantage of numbers will end and in their higher stages large numbers will be a great drawback. The resources of a planet are limited, at each stage of the arts. Also there is only a limited space on a planet. Yet it will come hard to them to think of ever checking their increase. They will bring more young into existence than they can either keep well or feed. The earth will be covered with them everywhere, as far as the eye can see. North and south, east and west, there will always be simians huddling. Their cities will be far more distressing than cities of vermin, for vermin are healthy and calm and successful in life. Ah, those masses of people, unintelligent, superstitious, uncivilized! What a dismal drain they will be on the race's strength! Not merely will they lessen its ultimate chance of achievement. Their hardships will always distress and preoccupy minds, fine, generous minds, that might have done great things if free that might have done something constructive, at least, for their era, instead of being burned out attacking mere anodyne problems. Nature will do what it can to lessen the strain, providing an appropriate remedy for their bad behavior and plagues. Many epochs will pass before the simians will learn or dare to control them, for they won't think they can any more than they dare control propagation. They will reverently call their propagation and plagues acts of God, when they get tired of reverence and stop their plagues, it will be too soon. Their inventiveness will be, as usual, ahead of their wisdom, and they will unfortunately end the good effects of plagues, as a check, before they are advanced enough to keep down their numbers themselves. Meanwhile, when, owing to the pressure of other desires, any group of primates does happen to become less prolific, they will feel ashamed, talk of race suicide, and call themselves decadent and they will often be right. For though some regulation of the birth-rate is an obvious good, and its diminution often desirable in any planet's history, yet among simians it will be apt to come from second-rate motives. Greed, selfishness, or fear-thoughts will be the incentives, the bribes. Contrivances, rather than continence, will be the method. How audacious, and how disconcerting to nature to baffle her thus! Even into her shrine they must thrust their bold paws to control her. Another race viewing them in the garlanded chambers of love, unpacking their singular devices, might think them grotesque. 
but the busy little simians will be blind to such quaint incongruities. Still, there is a great gift that their excess of passion will bestow on this race. It will give them romance. It will teach them what little they ever will learn about love. Other animals have little romance. There is none in the rut, that seasonal madness that drives them to mate with perhaps the first comer. But the simians will attain to a fine discrimination in love, and this will be their path to the only spiritual heights they can reach. For in love their inmost selves will draw near, in the silence of truth, learning little by little what the deepest sincerity means, and what clean hearts and minds, and what crystal-clear sight it demands. Such intercommunication of spirit with spirit is at the beginning of all true understanding. It is the beginning of silent cosmic wisdom. It may lead to knowing the ways of that power called God. 15. Not content with the whole of a planet, and themselves too, to study, this race's children will also study the heavens. How few kinds of creatures would ever have felt that impulse, and yet how natural it will seem to these! How boundless and magnificent is the curiosity of these tiny beings, who sit and peer out at the night from their small whirling globe, considering deeply the huge cold seas of space, and learning with wonderful skill to measure the stars. In studies so vast, however, they are tested to the core. In these great journeys the traveler must pay dear for his flaws. For it always is, when you most finely are exerting your strength, that every weakness you have most tells against you. One weakness of the primates is the character of their self-consciousness. This useful faculty that can probe so deep has one naive defect. It relies too readily on its own findings. It doesn't suspect enough its own unconfessed predilections. It assumes that it can be completely impartial, but isn't. To instance an obvious way in which it will betray them. Beings that are intensely self-conscious and aware of their selves will also instinctively feel that their universe is. What active principle animates the world, they will ask? A great blind force? It is possible, but they will recoil from admitting any such possibility. A self-aware, purposeful force, then? That is better, more simian. A blind force can't have been the creator of all, it's unthinkable. Any theory their brains find unthinkable cannot be true. This is not to argue that it really is a blind force, or the opposite. It is merely an instance of how little impartial they are. A second typical weakness of this race will come from their fears. They are not either self-sufficing or gallant enough to travel great roads without cringing. Clear-eyed, unafraid. They are finely made, but not nobly made, in that sense. They will therefore have a too urgent need of religion. Few primates have the courage to face, alone, the still inner mysteries, infinity, space, and time. They will think it too terrible. They will feel it would turn them to water to live through unearthly moments of vision without creeds or beliefs. So they'll get beliefs first. <laughs> Poor creatures! The cart before the horse! Ah, the blasphemy! Pitiful! Of their seeking high spiritual temples, with God-maps or Bibles about them, made below in advance! 
Think of their entering into the presence of truth, declaring so loudly and boldly they know her already, yet far from willing to stand or fall by her flames, to rise like a phoenix or die as an honorable cinder, but creeping in, clad in their queer, blindfolded beliefs, designed to shield them from her stern, bright tests. Think of truth, sadly, or merrily, eyeing such worms. End of Part 6 Recording by Epistomalus, Cupertino, California, epcomm slash school.